0: Good morning, and uh, y'all look so fresh this morning. Must be a good day. I'm Tom Nelson, and uh, welcome to uh, the Leawood Campus of Christ Community. We're always glad you're here. Uh, We don't take that for granted. We trust that you'll sense Jesus' presence here, and uh, wherever you are in your life and in your stage of life and journey, know how much you're welcomed here. We're so glad you're here. One of the most riveting books I've read in the last year is the book Unbroken. Maybe you've read it, uh, written by... Laura Hillenbrand, it has been a bestseller. And one of the reasons I think is because of her not only brilliant literary style, but she gives us a window into perhaps one of the greatest generation's greatest heroes, Louis Zamperini. And if you have followed this book and again the ensuing movie that came out this past year, you know that Louis Zamperini was a person of extraordinary strength, not only as an Olympic runner, but His ability to survive a Japanese imprisonment as a POW in World War II is stunning. The movie Unbroken, however, uh, portrays a little bit more of his life. And one of the things that stood out to me was this amazing, almost superhuman strength that Louis had. And again, if you've seen the movie, you know that one of the most impressive moments in the movie is, here's prisoner Louis Zamperini's. Uh, standing with his hands above his head with a big, huge wooden beam. And the prison guard has a gun on him, and the idea is if you drop the beam, you're dead. So you can imagine that moment. And the movie captures the Herculean strength and force of will of Louis Zamperini, who stands there with locked arms for hours. Unbelievable strength. What the movie does not tell us, however is how strongman Louis Zamperini crumbled when he came home, how deeply he stumbled when he came home to California. Uh, There's a particular chapter in Unbroken called Twisted Ropes that captures the downward spiral of this greatest generation hero who found himself a complete mess, not only to his family, but to his friends. And Laura writes these words. Drinking granted him a space of time in which to let it all go. Slowly, inexorably, Louis had gone from drinking because he wanted it to drinking because he needed it. Cynthia, his wife, was distraught over what her husband had now become. In public, his behavior was frightening and embarrassing. In private, he was often prickly and harsh with her. And wounded and worried, Cynthia simply couldn't bring Louis back. What stuns me about the portrayal of Louis Zamperini's life is here is this extraordinary person with such resiliency and superhuman strength, but even Louis Zamperini is anything but invisible and invincible. We often, don't we, pridefully cling to a mirage that says that we are strong, that we are invincible, don't we? Don't we live that way? And others around us, we seem to project on them as well. Sometimes we're surprised when those we think are really, really strong, invincible, when they stumble and fall badly. Perhaps you... Having your own experience, a close friend, someone maybe you grew up with, you looked up to, someone you always thought you could count on, but then reality crashes in on you and you realize you can't, maybe a spiritual leader or a political leader. We can never imagine that they would do something like that, but then we find out we are very wrong. It may even be a promise given to you, something you're still holding on to that will come true, but you deeply wonder. It may be a marriage that your own or someone you know that's so promising, and yet it quickly implodes. It may even be a business where you put together all the right plans and the right team and the right entrepreneurial endeavor, and within a year it has failed and stalled out. You may be an honor student here who aces every test, but you get this test back and you bombed it. See, all the way through life, I think we experience this reality that we're not as strong as we think we are. Even the brightest and best and strongest among us are amazingly fragile and vulnerable. It is this reality that the Apostle Paul plucks from 2,000 years ago and brings to our present moment through this brilliant letter of 1 Corinthians that we've been looking through as a church family. We now come to chapter 10, and here right in front of us is this truth. It's a fresh truth that all of us need to think about this morning, and that is that you are not as strong as you think you are, and neither am I. If you've read a Bible, I'd like you to turn this morning to the book of Corinthians in the New Testament, chapter 10. Again, we have been probing this remarkable letter, and let's just set the the literary context before we dive into chapter 10, okay? What we have discovered are some major themes in Corinthians, this letter to the first century church at Corinth, Greece. One of the themes we have been repeatedly seeing is the threat of pride. Pride does amazing things to us, to the families we love, to our marriages, and to the communities we love. Profoundly disfigures disfigures its realities. Pride inevitably brings disastrous consequences, and Paul will unpack this throughout the book. We've also discovered recently in chapters 8 and 9 that we need love and understanding and sacrifice because, as Paul says, there are weaker and stronger brothers, two categories in the local church. But I want you to know that as we come into chapter 10, Paul jettisons these two categories of the stronger and weaker, and he gives us a new category that's all-encompassing for every one of us, and that category is not the strong or the weak, but the vulnerable. Because all of us are vulnerable. And it's as if Paul has this sense of hopeful realism that flows through his inspired pen as he writes. He wants us to know, as followers of Christ, not one of us is as strong as we think we are. Here in chapter 10, verses 1 through 22, Paul gives, as he often does as a rabbi, two golden nuggets of wisdom that he wants us to tuck in our hearts and minds. In the first nugget of wisdom we find in the first five verses, and that is we can know much. And what he mean by knowing is we can experience much or cognitively know much, but we can fail miserably. Look at me in verses 1 through 5. I'd like to read it again, and maybe when you heard it read, you go, wow, that's hard to understand. Uh, I've uh, done a lot of study of the Bible, and I have to say these first verses are kind of hard to figure out, aren't they? Let's read them again, and I think we'll understand more what they are. Paul writes, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers or sisters, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now, again, you may be thinking, what is Paul saying? Well, what he's doing is he's seeking to remind the Corinthians in the first century of their own vulnerability, their own fragility of their faith, and he gives them, as a good rabbi, a brief Old Testament history lesson. That's what he does. Apostle Paul, like great thinkers, understood that history can be a great teacher. On one hand, he has the confidence that history can teach them something. But on the other hand, he knows that what we learn most from history is what? That we don't learn from history. And so he weaves this together in a really brilliant literary flair. He gives us a brief history lesson. Now, he goes back to the time of Exodus, the time of Moses, pretty big thing in the Jewish history, isn't it? Moses was a big deal. And the Exodus from God's covenant people coming out of Egypt as slaves going into the Promised Land was a big deal. And he paints these pictures with literary flair, just a little bit of bits and pieces on his tapestry, of, first of all, God's covenant people's miraculous deliverance from Egypt and the intimations are that he has this picture of walking through the red sea it was a big deal if you walk through the red sea and there's not a splash of mud on their trousers or on their sandals there's not anything i mean they're not a bit they're not wet or muddy it's the picture that'd be pretty amazing wouldn't it five times in these verses paul makes the point that israel shared in the blessings of god's miraculous favor and provision they experienced it firsthand now, when you read this language being under the cloud, what do you think about? It's twice here. I think it's sort of, you know, the data that's supposedly saved off my hard drive somewhere in outer space or server farm or wherever it is, I don't know. But under the cloud here is a simple language in the cultural context to describe God's guidance. We have to understand Exodus 13 because this is plucked right from there. Think of it like this. You know, we like GPSs. We live on those things. But God in the, in the wilderness, when he brought the people out of Egypt, had his own global positioning system, God's positioning system. And it was called a pillar of fire and pillar of clouds. And if you look at Exodus 13, you know that God's covenant people, once they leave Egypt to go in the wilderness, they have a guidance system by day and by night. Pillar of fire, pillar of cloud. That's the idea. So can you imagine Paul invites us back into that experience? If you were that, that generation, you experienced the miraculous deliverance from Egypt and all the plagues and all that. Passage through the Red Sea, miraculous guidance with his GPS system all the time, night and day. Not only that, if you remember in the story, there's manna from heaven. This God supernaturally gives them food to eat and water from the rock. And notice, Paul slips in the provider, Jesus Christ, the rock. Do you see that? But yet most of them refuse to trust God. And eventually, what happens in the story? If you've read the story, you know that they end up, a whole generation ends up not going to the promised land, not experiencing the blessing of God, but what? They're digging graves in a wilderness because they wouldn't trust God. In other words, they failed miserably. And notice in verse 5, this little phrase, nevertheless, because the logic hinges on this. Even though this generation experienced all this, even though they knew a lot about God, they experienced all these things, they failed miserably. So Paul wants us to know that embedded in this history lesson is a timely lesson for us. That even a great past experience we may have had with God, does not guarantee failure with God in the present, nor the future. This is a danger for all of us, young and old. If we're newer to the Christian faith, if we're seeking the Christian faith, we've been a Christian a long time, been in church all our life, we're just coming back. This is an important lesson for all of us. We can have a powerful experience in our past, maybe even of God at a camp or some experience. We maybe even had a direct answer to prayer. It might have been a Hail Mary, you know, like, help! But God helped us. And maybe God physically or emotionally healed you or someone you love or gave you a provision you really need. These are wonderful things, but they do not guarantee that you and I will not fail miserably with God now or in the future. Faithfulness is always a here and now reality. See, daily we are bombarded, aren't we? I mean, I I am when I see on... The Wall Street Journal or a commercial were bombarded with financial products, investment products. That's important for us, right? Um, Maybe it's saving for college, our kids for college. You go, that's pretty important. So you have all the string of, you know, this is the return on your investment. Also a commercial. You might hear a commercial of some kind, an audio commercial, and you know at the end, whether it's written or audible, you have this little fine print. Have you noticed? And the fine print inevitably says this, past results don't guarantee present or future results. And this is what Paul is saying using the history lesson. He's saying, hey, look at this, this great experience with God, present failure, future failure. That's what he's saying. And notice in verses 6 through 11, he frames this text around the word example. It's bookended, example, example. He wants us to know, to look back at history and learn something from it. And he gives four examples. Verse 7, 8, 9, and 10. Bing, 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 bing. So that's what he's doing. Verse 7, he points out the drunken revelry when God's coming to people worship the golden cloth in the wilderness. Pretty bad deal. Wow, that's a blow. That's a big blow. It. Verse 8, another time unrestrained sexual immorality. God's coming to people. These are God's coming to people. And then verse 9, he presents a time when the language is they test God. I may not be crude here, but this is really what they did. They gave God a finger. I don't need you. Stubborn. God's covenant people. Talk about failure. And in verse 10, you have this picture of them grumbling. Now, grumbling is not just because they didn't like the dinners a little cold. They, they didn't like dinner either. They wanted something else. They got tired of manna. And you would have too. I would have too. But the idea is, is that, they want to go back to Egypt. They mutiny against their leader. <laughs> Come on back to good old Egypt. we got to go back to Egypt. I mean, they're just rebellious. <laughs> These are four examples. Bing, 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 bing. Like, do you believe them? Passed through the Red Sea, and they're a mess. So what Paul is doing here is he's painting a pitiful portrait of miserable failure. And the common thread is Idolatry, in fact, explicitly he says it in verse 7, but it's implicitly woven through this whole text. Remember that idolatry is at the heart of each of our lives. It's the basis of sin and rebellion. An idol may be a golden calf, yes, we make and worship, but it's more like to be a grumbling and ungrateful heart that is unwilling to trust God for our desires, our longings, our provision, our dreams. The circumstances of life we now face. See, hard idols are things or people that we make ultimate in our lives rather than God. Idols are always counterfeit gods that we allow to seduce our affections, our time, our talents, our treasures. And we look to them rather than God for meaning, for intimacy, for security, for pleasure, for joy, for hope, for significance. Puritan writers of that era used to describe the human heart as an idol factory. That's your heart and mine. We're awfully good at idols. An idol may be a child. A spouse, a girlfriend, a boyfriend. An idol in our heart may be a savings account or an investment portfolio. It's something something we simply love too much, more than God. An idol may be a pleasure like food or wine or Sports or music or sex that we love too much. And I don't make the form of lots of things, material possessions or a career, right, or money or feeling powerful over (laughs) others, feeling successful or having the most outstanding family around. Hmm. Or at school, right, popularity or good looks or even religion. See, there are many idols that beckon for our affections and allegiance. But all idols have one thing in common. Idols inevitably promise much and deliver little. Idols always hijack the rightful worship of God in our lives. That's their focus. And they eventually lead to disappointment in your life and mind, regret, and ultimately despair. Idols are the ultimate Ponzi scheme. And this is what Paul is saying. So let me just ask. A question I asked myself this week. Tom, what are the idols enticing my heart's affection away from God? Let me give you a couple questions to reflect on. First, who or what can't you survive without? It's usually a pretty good indicator you're on an idol trail. Is it a person, pleasure, possession, job, career, a dream you're pursuing? Is it the desperation in your heart to know that you matter to someone, or is it the pain of the past? Second question. Who or what do you think about and talk about most? Family, job, money, investments? Retirement security, your health, trying to control others, and we can make a long list, can't we? The truth is that what you and I really can't live without is an intimate relationship with God. We were designed to know God and be fully known by him, to be loved by him. And Christ came to this sin-ravaged planet, to your life and the mind to redeem us. The deepest longings of your heart and mind can only be satisfied in our Lord Jesus Christ. Yet all of us pursue other heart loves, don't we? Rather than the greatest lover of our souls. See, we can know much and fail miserably. But there's a second nugget of wisdom Paul unpacks for us and it's in verse 12. We can think we are strong, really strong and we can fall greatly. Look at verse 12. Therefore, and therefore again, is the logical crescendo of the first 11 verses. We must not miss its importance. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Paul is giving a warning, isn't he? A shot across the bow. He says unguarded strength is actually a dangerous weakness. Watch out. See, just when we think think we've got life figured out, we've got things figured out, Our spiritual life is going great. We are very vulnerable and we're ready to take a tumble at any moment. One of the things I love to do is to climb mountains. I love the fresh, well, it's often thin air that I have to breathe hard. I love the Rocky Mountains, I love climbing them. I love the smell of the spruce, I could go on and on. It's beautiful. And I love climbing 14,000 peaks, at least once when I'm there. When I get to the top, it's agony getting up there. But if you're a novice hiker, or a seasoned hiker, there's a difference. Because a seasoned hiker knows that the greatest danger in climbing a mountain is not going up, it's going down. There are many reasons why they can say fatigue, but generally when we go down, we think we've already conquered the mountain, and we become careless and overconfident. See, overconfidence and carelessness and spiritual pride is dangerous in a faith journey, too. I don't know where you are in your journey, but I know you and me both are very vulnerable in it. Paul says, don't let your guard down, and you hear the echoings of Old Testament wisdom all the way through 1 Corinthians. Here is Proverbs 16, 18. Right, we use that language. Pride goes before the fall. And in Proverbs 16 18, we hear these words, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Kids, one of the, my favorite stories in the Old Testament, it was when I was a kid, and I'm still a kid at heart, is David and Goliath. Isn't that an amazing story? All of us know it, don't we, at some level? I mean, you imagine, here's Goliath. <laughs> the writer's saying, it's brilliant how he presents it. Here's Goliath. He gives us a description of this Tower of Terror, this incredible Hulk, Terminator, whatever mixture of this guy is. Ten feet tall, 140 pounds of bronze armor. He defies all the armies of Israel for 40 days. <laughs> and then there's this little five-whatever-foot teenage boy. Can you imagine that? David, who comes with this little slingshot. And Goliath must have thought, I'm too big to fall. We hear a lot of that, don't we? Whack! One stone, forehead, bam! That's it? (laughs) I just love that. But it also haunts me. Because we may not be physically that strong, but we might be that arrogant and overconfident and careless. We may think because we know the Bible well, because we've been a Christian for a while, because we've been in church, we wouldn't fall like that person or fail that way. Watch out, Paul says. So wherever we are in our spiritual journey, each one of us here this morning is very vulnerable to temptations, many snares and idolatry, seductive, enticing Appeals. Paul wants us to be sober, but hopeful. We can learn from past mistakes, but we need to understand to trust God in the present to empower us and protect us. Look at me at verses 13 through 14. Paul says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee idolatry. You notice how Paul weaves together both encouragement and exhortation. We can know much and fail miserably. We can think we're strong and fall greatly. We need to know, Paul says here, we're not alone in our temptations. We need to know God is with us to help us in our temptation, whatever that is. We need to know also, Paul says here in this text, that we need to know God allows temptations in his sovereign plan to come into our life. And we need to know how to escape temptations' relentless grasp. Notice what the text says. God will provide a way of escape. But what is the primary escape route? It is fleeing. God opens the door for us to flee. But we still have to make a choice. And the question is, will we run through that door? See, behind every temptation we face, everyone, whether, let's just think about something, premarital sex, extramarital affairs, gambling, maybe, pornography, maybe it's gossiping, or lying, or stealing, or slothfulness or workaholism, manipulating others, we can just make a long list, couldn't we? Behind every one of those idols, those temptations, there is a counterfeit God masked that wants us to worship it. It's been wisely said, I think this is really brilliant actually, that every man who walks in a brothel is seeking God. The Problem is, all he is going to find is a mirage of despair from a false idol. Let's take a closer look at temptation. All of us wrestle with this. General Westmoreland of the Vietnam era, brilliant general said this. I love this, You always view the hill from the vantage point of the enemy. We must never minimize Satan's influence in the world, in our community, our city, in your life and mine. Our sin for which we are responsible before a holy God and Satan's influence gets so deeply intertwined. You and I need to know how Satan works. He was defeated on the cross, but he's not vanquished fully yet. Satan has three big weapons. Do you know that? Scriptures teach us this: temptation, deception, and accusation. In his outstanding new book called *The Crucified King*, I commend it to you. It's one of the best books I've read in the last couple months. Jeremy Treat unpacks this with brilliance. The evil intertwining of the evil one, and he writes these. I think we have it on the slide. Satan tempts people to sin deceives them of the effects of sin, accuses them of the guilt of sin, and thereby leads them to death, the wages of sin. What is Jeremy saying? The biblical text tells us the three weapons of Satan have this dynamic to them. Let's unpack it. For example, think for a moment of a temptation you're facing. I have one in my mind. Think about tomorrow, think about this week, maybe today, temptations you're facing. How does the evil one work? First, temptation. Temptation has thoughts that are placed into your mind, masquerading often in rationalizations like, it's only stretching the truth a little. No one will know. You know, you you deserve to have your needs met. You deserve to feel loved, you've been working hard. You, you deserve to feel understood. Once temptation presents its enticing bait, then deceptive thoughts blind you, as Jeremy says, to the effects of that temptation, to the consequences. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Satan strikes, God becomes completely unreal to us. It's true. Deceptive thoughts we buy into, like, go ahead, it won't hurt anybody. No one will know. Have you ever done it? I'll just try it this one time. (laughs) Come on, it's no big deal. Everyone's doing it. And you could list all those. You know those. Have you played those in your mind and heart? And as soon as we buy in from temptation to deception, when we take temptation's bait, the hidden hook of regret, sets in. Satan bombards us with his third arrow. Temptation, deception, and accusation. Beared do it? Look at what you've done. What a hypocrite you are. You're worthless. You're unlovable. You always fail. How can you be a Christian and think that? Or do that? Shame on you. Shame on you. Do you know how Satan works? Are you discerning of his tactics? And do you know how temptation works? The writer James helps us understand that. In James chapter one, verses 14 through 15, we read these words. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. What is he saying? Let me translate it. There's a progression to temptation in your life and mind. This is how it goes. I want that. I want that. And it moves from that. That's the enticement of desire. that moves to that. I'm going to do this. That's the birth of sin, James talks about. And then there is death. And we say, I wish I hadn't done it. Temptation begins. I want it. I'm going to do it. I wish I hadn't done it. The rush of exhilaration greets us with a sneer, with the reality of painful regret. So, how do we deal with temptation? Let me respond to this text with three points of application that are specific. First, we need to worship rightly. (laughs) Worship rightly. At the heart of temptation's battle, dear friends, there's all kinds of things going on, but the heart of temptation is about worship. Right worship or wrong worship. We become what we worship, either for our ultimate ruin or our redemption. Ever since Satan deceived Eve in the garden long ago, to not trust God, it was all about worshiping wrongly. Once Eve got that wrong and Adam got that wrong, all hell broke loose on this earth in your heart. The good news of the gospel, however, gives us hope, doesn't it? That we can once again worship rightly that Jesus Christ's atoning death on the cross, his glorious resurrection from the dead, now make it possible for us not to be idol worshipers anymore, but true God worshipers in spirit and truth. It's not on the basis of anything we have done or could ever do, but on Jesus' completed work on the cross that satisfied the righteous wrath of a holy God against sin and defeated the powers of evil, the one who makes possible the forgiveness of sin and new creation life. See, the good news of the gospel forever stamps on our hearts. Don't miss this, that we are greater sinners than we could ever care to understand or admit. And also we are more loved than we can ever imagine. Without embracing the good news of the gospel, without trusting Christ as your Lord and Savior, you and I have no power or hope to withstand the temptations of our own sinful nature as well as those barbing arrows of the evil one. We have no chance. But with Christ we have the power available to us to flee from temptation's grasp and to turn our back on Satan's accusations. If we have embraced the gospel, we are safe and secure in Jesus' loving nail-scarred arms in his hands. We have a new master and a new identity as apprentices of Jesus and as children of the King. Worship rightly. Secondly, walk humbly. The closer you walk with Jesus, the more you'll begin to reflect what he's like. Is there a growing gentleness and humility or a growing pride and haughtiness of spirit? In the yoke of Jesus Christ as we follow him, as we become his apprentices, we learn to walk gently and humbly with him in his kingdom reign and we learn how to say no to temptation, why Jesus faced every temptation you and I will ever face. Yet without sin, the Bible says, can you imagine the beginning of his public ministry, Satan pulled out every cosmic stop against Jesus in the wilderness. And then right before Jesus went to that cross, for you and me, once again, Satan brought all hellish flurry to the Son of God's life. And he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And at that moment of temptation, none of us have even fathomed the depth of that temptation to abandon mission. And Jesus didn't. And that's for you and me. Isn't it interesting that physiologically in his humanity, he sweat great drops of blood. <laughs> that's temptation. Jesus knows every temptation. You're never alone in your temptation or if you're a follower of Jesus. He's always with you to help you and guide you. Third, flee immediately. Worship rightly. Walk humbly and flee immediately. Paul says basically in this text, in order not to fall, you have to flee. That's it. That's the the primary escape route for temptation. We can't argue or persuade ourselves out of temptation. We can't fight it head on. We have to flee. And you and I have to flee over and over again until a well-worn path that runs from temptation's bait and runs home to truth and to the arms, the loving arms of our Savior. Your battle with temptation, my battle with temptation is won or lost at the very beginning of the first round of the fight. It is, that's where it's won or lost. So We flee from deception, we run to truth. We embrace the practices of Jesus as his apprentice. We cultivate a lifestyle of spiritual discipline like solitude, prayer, study, fasting, and service. And we cultivate a joyful intimacy with God. And let me just tell you from my own experience, but from the truth of God's word, the more satisfied, The more joyful you are in Christ, the less appealing the seduction of counterfeit gods become in your life. If you are in Christ, remember, temptation is never the final word, nor does Satan ever have the final say. In her book, Unbroken, Laura Hillenbrand describes Louis Zamperini's Great fall, yes, but also his great change. When he hears Billy Graham the Evangelist present the good news of the gospel, and Laura Hillenbrand describes the moment of transformation in Louis Zamperini's life, she writes this Resting in the shade and stillness, Louis felt profound peace. When he thought of his history, what resonated with him now was not all he had suffered, but the divine love that he believed had intervened to save him. He was not a worthless, broken, forsaken man anymore. In a single silent moment, his rage, his fear, his humiliation, and his helplessness had fallen away. That moment he believed he was a new creation, and Louis softly wept. We are not as strong as we think we are. But Jesus is much stronger than we could ever imagine. Let's go to his arms, his loving arms. Let's pray. Emily, Father, we all feel the fragility of our lives. Our inclinations to wander from you. So bring hope and comfort to every heart. and Bring conviction where that is needed. In Christ, and in Christ alone, we find strength. And may we run to your loving arms, your gracious arms, and find rest.